Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you to earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you can start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Navy Federal also offers equity loan options to help you get the funds you need to consolidate high-interest debt, work on home improvements, or cover any of life's big expenses. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, their members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Terms and conditions apply, loan subject to approval. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we're discussing automating your money and negotiating like a boss with Ramit Sadie. Yeah, Joel, Ramit Sadie is the best-selling author of the book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. He started his website by the same name while he was an undergrad student at Stanford. He was studying psychology at the time. Ramit has written about personal finance for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Honestly, it would be quicker for us to summarize what Ramit hasn't done than to exhaust everything that he's been able to accomplish so far. And make sure to stick around until the end of the episode as well so that you can learn how to enter to win one of the few copies of Ramit's book that we're going to give away. So Ramit, thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Ramit, normally on the show, we drink a craft beer every episode. And this is the first time we haven't done that. We're actually recording with you in the morning. So because we're not alcoholics, we're drinking a cold brew coffee. (laughs) But our first question to everyone is, we drink beer because it represents something that we value in the here and now. We're willing to spend a lot of money on good beer. What's your splurge? What's your craft beer equivalent? Ooh, I love that we are starting off 
with what we love spending money on instead of the most common topic on personal finance, which is all the things you can't do with your money. I love talking about what you can do with your money. So this is an awesome question. I have a lot of things that I love spending money on. One of them is travel. And for example, when we went on our honeymoon last year, my wife and I got married, we went on a six-week honeymoon, and we decided to take our parents with us to the first stop, which was Italy. And that was pretty magical to have that experience and to create those memories with them. So travel, I love spending money on clothes. And I also have things that I just don't care about spending money on. Like uh, I've lived in the same apartment, renting it for 10 years. I love it. It's great. Uh, I also don't have a TV and I hardly ever eat out. So I do believe, uh, just like you guys said with craft beer, that you should spend extravagantly, extravagantly on the things you love, but cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. Yeah, what's what's at the core of that, Ramit, is the fact that you're just being intentional with your money, right? Like obviously you've put a lot of thought and energy behind what you spend your money on. And so yeah, because of that, you're you're spending wisely for for you as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. And I think everyone has their own rich life, and yours is definitely different than mine, and that's okay. So when you hear this advice about don't spend money on this and that, it's just kind of disingenuous and ridiculous because I have my own money rules. For example, if I'm going to fly over four and a half hours, I'm going to go business class. Well, if you can't afford that, that makes no sense. But also, if you just don't care about that, that makes no sense. But for some people, they have different money rules. The key thing I would say is come up with those money rules for yourself. Don't let society tell you what you can and can't do. So Rami, let's talk about your book. You wrote a crazy popular book back in 2009. And then you made the choice to go ahead and update it and re-release it this year. So what did you uh, really want to make a point to include this time around that wasn't part of the, uh, the original release? Well, a lot had changed in 10 years. Uh, if I look externally, there are new accounts out there that did not exist 10 years ago. For example, I use a different credit card now. There are also new checking and savings accounts. There are cultural movements that didn't exist 10 years ago, like FIRE and robo-advisors are new things on the block. And then internally, a lot of things had changed in my life too. For example, I got married and I went through a very interesting and challenging set of discussions around love and money with my wife and my business had grown. So I now think about money completely differently than I used to. So I wanted to add all of those things to the book and I added over 80 pages of new material so that people could get a completely up-to-date and fresh perspective on I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Yeah, you also included in this version of the book a lot of great reader anecdotes. And I think that's one of my favorite parts of, of this edition. So yeah, what made you include specific stories from the people that have read the book? And then how'd you go about you know, gathering those? Well, I, the, the reader stories are one of my favorite things that I put in the book. In fact, if you turn to page one, you will see different photos of my readers and their stories about using the book to create their rich life. There's a guy on there who, uh, who writes about how he and his wife, age 35 and 36, use the book to retire in their mid-30s, and now they have an RV that they drive all around the country. And I love that because that is their rich life, and they used I Will Teach You to Be Rich to accomplish it. The other thing that's striking about these stories is you realize that a rich life can actually be very diverse. Not just an RV or, you know, some people want to eat out at Michelin starred restaurants once a week, but also the way people look. And that is amazing. 
when you ask people, what does rich look like? It's so interesting. A lot of times they think that rich is this old stereotype of richy rich walking around in a tuxedo and some kind of chinchilla coat. And that's totally <laughs> ridiculous. These days, rich can be physically fit. It can be you work six months a year from a different location. Rich can be you travel with your parents or your family. Rich can be so many different things. That's why I will teach you to be rich continues to evolve because your rich life is yours. It's not anybody else's, it's yours. Yeah, that's awesome. Also in, in your book, you mentioned you know, these different money scripts that we've constructed in our brains over time. Can you give our listeners an idea of what you mean by these scripts? And then like, what are some of the most common examples that you see folks struggle with? Well, think about the phrases that your parents may have offhandedly mentioned over the dinner table when you were growing up. And I'm talking about really rewind. Everybody listening, just close your eyes for a second and think about age five, age eight, age 12. What'd your parents say? Let me ask you guys, what phrases did you hear your parents saying about money? Money's tight. We don't have enough. We can't afford that. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Anything else? How about uh, work hard, make a lot of money? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Those are all very common scripts. Let's start with the first set, which are money's tight. Money doesn't grow on trees. We can't afford that. And think about how that stays with you for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. How many people listening right now have said, I can't afford that? Maybe, maybe that's true. Or maybe you haven't made the choice to spend on that thing and cut back on other things or to earn more, which is very possible. I show you how to do in the book. We carry these scripts with us. The, the most common ones being ones of scarcity. Money doesn't grow on trees. We can't afford that. That's not for people like us. Okay. But on the other hand, we have different constructive scripts like work hard, make more money. That's very interesting and actually quite rare. So I cover these scripts and on different areas. Investing, people say things like, I need to be rich to start investing, when in reality, it's actually the opposite. You get rich by investing. I also have psychological scripts for credit cards. You know, people say things like, oh, paying fees are just the cost of doing business. And then... I'm going to be saddled with debt until I'm in my 70s, right? These are scripts, they're stories, they're narratives we tell ourselves. And what I realized in the first edition of the book was, I can give you the perfect techniques, I can show you the perfect automation flow in chapter five, but if you don't tackle your invisible scripts when it comes to money, then none of this stuff matters. And so you need to be able to understand the stories you've been telling yourself. For example, anyone who makes a lot of money has had to step on other people. If you believe that to make money, you have to become evil, then it's no surprise you're not going to make a lot of money. And so I want to show you how to tackle those in the book. And then I show you the tactics to implement and win. Yeah, you were studying psychology when you started your blog and kind of when you started thinking about these things. And yeah, on the show, we've talked about how psychology is such a big part of how we handle money and the things that we believe are about money. And so I feel like this, this is one of my favorite things that you tackle because it is such an important component of personal finance. So let's say we did hear some of those things at the dinner table from our parents, or we believe some of these things about money, like it's scarce and it's hard to find and I don't have enough and I can't get enough. Well, how do you feel like we can combat these ingrained money untruths that we've been fed? The first thing is to recognize them as present. You know, most people believe that things are just the way they are and that they are the truth. 
And it's interesting, you discover this most commonly when you travel to another country and you realize, oh my God, things are really different here. Things I assumed were universal are actually just American. And a good example is you think about personal space. In America, we love personal space. Oh, can you please back up two feet? I'm in the line at the grocery store. Whereas in other countries, for different reasons, including population, geography, the concept of personal space is totally different, right? People crowd each other. And as an American, it's easy to feel really uncomfortable about that. But when you go to a country with a different set of eyes and you say, hey, instead of judging them for not being like us, let me actually try to understand why. And I call this the D to C principle, disparagement to curiosity. Super common for people to go abroad and be like, oh my God, this is so horrible. Why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Oh my God. And I have done that myself, right? Come from a place of judgment. And I had to correct myself. And it's taken multiple, multiple years to say, you know what? If I approach this with a purely American perspective, then of course I'm going to be disappointed because I'm using a different lens. But what if I say, hey, why do they do this? What would it look like if we actually did this in America? Are there structural reasons? So the first step to battling your own invisible scripts is to go from D to C, is to actually recognize that they might be stories. You might have been telling yourself a story for the last 30 years. Nice. It takes that shift and that curiosity to kind of round that corner. I want to shift a little bit now actually to talk about just the, the flood of information that we have at our, at our fingertips when it comes to our personal finances and investing. It seems a lot of times we do just have too much information right, at our disposal. Why is it that that's actually sometimes the opposite of, of what we need? Well, I, I mean, uh, one common thing you find in personal finance is the people who follow the most personal finance sites, they read all the subreddits, they listen to all the podcasts, they follow all the people on Instagram and Twitter. They're actually the people who haven't done anything with their money. So I would recommend you find one or two people you trust, who you like, who inspire you, and do everything they say. Follow their advice as it applies to you. And you don't need to be surrounded by a million different pieces of information. You do need diverse information. But at a certain point, you know what you need to do. And it shifts from pure information to actually taking action. So I'll give you an example from my book. In chapter one, I talk about credit cards, how to beat them, how to squeeze them, how to get your fees refunded, and how to get major perks like upgraded to suites for free when you stay at a hotel. Virtually every other money book starts with the same chapter one. Do you know what almost every book tells you to do in chapter one? Budget. Yeah. <laughs> Track your spending, yeah. budgeting. Yes. Bingo. You nailed it. Exactly. They're like, okay, guys, let's figure out how much you spent over the last six months. And you know what the average reader does? Checks out. <laughs> yeah. Page two. They're like, uh, I don't know what I spent in the last six months, but I know it was probably bad. I don't really like this book. It makes me feel bad. Goodbye. <laughs> and they put it back on the shelf. Okay. That demonstrates a profound lack of understanding of human psychology. When you have people purely giving you information, oh my God, here's another compound interest chart, as if you didn't already know you should be investing more. People know they're not stupid. They're actually really smart. They know they should be investing. They know they should be saving. They know they should create a debt plan. So telling them again is not what's going to get them to change. And when I wrote this book, I was determined to get people to actually change. In my business, if people don't use my material and get results, we go out of business. It's that simple. I'm not selling ads. 
I'm not doing any of that. People have to pay for my material because it's good. And so I sat down and decided to write a book that would actually change behavior. And I used the material that I learned studying technology and psychology at Stanford. I used my website, which is my experimental laboratory. And so when you start with credit cards, it's for a reason. Everyone's got a credit card. Everybody hates their credit card. And nobody knows how they can squeeze their credit cards and turn them into benefits instead of disadvantages. So when it comes to information, you have the information. You already know compound interest and bank rate calculators. What you need to do is focus on how you can take action and how you can automate your investments. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you also get tons of emails with a whole lot of excuses. I've heard you talk about that before. What are your thoughts on, on kind of the common excuses that people give for not being able to save or invest? <laughs> this is another story that people tell us that they tell themselves, must be nice. That's my favorite phrase, must be nice. Yeah, it is nice. It is nice to save money. It is nice to invest money. It is nice to spend money. So let's figure out how you can do that too. Must be nice to save $100 a month. I can't even afford to buy a cardboard box to ship something back to Amazon. That's what people do. They almost compete in an era of uh, competition of self-victimization. And I refuse to indulge in this. Some of us start on first base, second base, third base in different parts of life. Let's acknowledge it. And then let's work to improve from wherever we start. So I've got people who have $230,000 of debt reading my material. I've got people who make six figures at age 22. I've got people in their 30s or 40s who have zero saved and others who have over a million dollars saved. The concepts can apply, but here are the common excuses. Uh, must be nice. There's no way I could save $100 a month or $1,000 a month or $10,000, whatever the number is. I don't have time or I'm overwhelmed. These are like the basic excuses. And I can tell you that 100% of the people who use these excuses have never sat down for one weekend and read one personal finance book. Never. And so what happens is you have people in their 20s, they ignore it, they kick it down the road, they say, oh, I'll, I'll deal with this later. In their 30s, they start to feel a little more guilty. Oh man, I really should be doing something. Oh, I got $3,000 in some old 401k. I don't really know what to do with it. What's this rollover thing? And then in their 40s, people typically wake up, they suddenly have a mortgage, maybe one or two kids, and they go, oh, I really need to do something. And what I would urge people to do is to realize most people are mostly the same. This is really important. We all think we're special snowflakes, but in reality, most of us follow pretty predictable life patterns. We graduate if we go to college, we get a job, maybe we switch jobs, uh, we potentially get in a relationship, maybe get married, have kids, buy a house, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you may be different. You may decide that you're going to start your own business like I did, or you may not get married. But in general, we are most people are mostly the same. So instead of the excuses, I would rather people say, hey, let me just assume that 95% of my life is going to be similar to other people. Let me win on those areas. And then I can optimize for that 5% where I'm truly different. With a background in psychology, you know, you've got a lot of experience in interpersonal relationships and you love to negotiate. So we're actually going to talk more about negotiating right after the break. Can't wait. Let's do it. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. 
It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000 plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money when it comes to financial advice you got to trust the source that's why you listen to this podcast and if you're looking to upgrade your wallet you need to turn to nerd wallet their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products if you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades what could future you do with more travel rewards a hotel upgrade lounge access Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. All 
All right, back from the break, we're talking with Ramit Sethi. And we mentioned in the headline of this episode that negotiating like a boss was something we were going to cover. And man, Ramit, as a kid, from what you've talked about in your book, you received kind of like a masterclass in negotiation from your dad. Can you share with us what you learned from watching him and his uh, ninja-like negotiating skills? (laughs) You know what? I, I learned so much from both my parents. Both my parents came here as immigrants in the 70s. And part of it was, uh, you know, my dad worked, my mom stayed home with us, the kids, and we didn't have a lot of money. So they had to be creative. And part of it was they simply didn't know what you can and cannot ask for. So I remember learning, my mom sometimes would just go and say, you know, is there any opportunity here for a discount? And looking back now, I realized that she taught me so many things without me even, without her explicitly saying it. She taught me that Number one, you can ask, just ask. Number two, that you can always be polite. In America, we believe negotiation is necessarily adversarial, that someone's got to lose and someone's got to feel bad. And what she taught me is that's not true. In fact, a lot of people, if you ask them politely, are more than happy to do it. Uh, My dad taught me that you don't have to worry about being embarrassed. You can ask, again, you can be polite, and sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. And if you don't get it, that's okay. It's a dance. So I learned these things, whether it came to shopping at Macy's or buying a car. And then I used those myself as I got older. Now I adapted them. I made them a little bit more modern. For example, when it came to buying a car, I, instead of going into a million different dealerships, I was using a fax machine at the time. But the point remains that you can actually ask. And oftentimes, if you negotiate, you can save thousands or tens of thousands of dollars over your lifetime. Yeah, it sounds like what your mom was doing was modeling. And modeling behavior is so much more important. We talk about this on the show. It, it, modeling that behavior for your kids, they learn it through osmosis that way. But if you lecture them, it, it doesn't yes. stick very well, right? It's so true. With your dad, though, you shared a story about buying a car. And it was just it was pretty funny, actually. <laughs> can, can you share that with us? My, my dad... Uh, so I grew up thinking that it's normal to, when you buy a car that it takes four to five days like we would go into the dealership, <laughs> we would go home at the end of the day, and then we'd come back the next day. And we did that for like a week. Nice. I thought this was totally normal. And then <laughs> I, I came to college. Yeah, completely. Like you, you get your clothes on and you get like mentally ready. Okay, we're going to the dealership. <laughs> it's Wednesday, you know, and we've already been there for two days. Then I went to college and I learned my friends told me, oh yeah, like uh, my family, we just went to the dealer and we liked this car and we bought it. And I was like, what do you mean you bought it? They're like, yeah, we just bought it. We drove it home. I'm like that day. So my dad, so I, that's when I realized I had this world shattering realization that I grew up a little funny. And I remember my dad, it was probably day three or four. And we're like, finally about to sign it. And he goes, you're going to throw in the floor mats for free, right? And these are like $50 floor mats. And it, it just became this huge point of contention for $50 floor mats. But what I also learned was my dad was in no rush, no rush at all. And in fact, he had plenty of time. When you have time and patience, you can often get the best deals. Hmm. Ramit, are, you know, are there times that you feel that it's inappropriate to negotiate? When do you consider like the different social pressures or expectations? And at times, when would that keep you from maybe getting a better deal? I actually am so glad you asked that. I do agree there are times where it is inappropriate. You know, I would never go to a restaurant and attempt to negotiate the, the uh, bill. I would never go to a mom and pop place and try to negotiate for something that they clearly put their time and love into. 
I think that when you go to a place where negotiation is expected, then it's expected and you should play the game, play the role of negotiating. It's funny, I, I've, I've seen people, for example, when they go to India and they go to these street markets and they're super uncomfortable negotiating with these street vendors as if they're ever going to get one over these street vendors who've been selling this stuff for generations. These guys are way smarter than you or me, okay? So trust me when I say, when you go to a place where negotiation is expected, you're never going to trick someone into selling you something for below their cost. Instead, you're engaging in a dance. And so there are times where I would negotiate, but I'll tell you now, I've come to a place where I would actually, like I have some vendors that work for me and I often tell them, look, I will pay your full rate, but I'm going to be a very demanding client. This is what I expect. I expect a 24-hour turnaround during business hours. I expect this. I expect that. And I tell them, I will stay with you for years. I have some vendors I've worked with for five or 10 years, but I'm going to be a very demanding client. With that said, I will pay you on time every time and I will pay your asking rate. So I think you can negotiate not just on price, but also on quality, Hmm. on delivery, et cetera. So I want people to really think about negotiation multidimensionally. Everybody thinks about somebody inappropriately going into a restaurant and asking for a 50% discount. That is a caricature of negotiation. Negotiation can be nuanced. It can be positive. It can be a dance for both parties. And it can actually result in a better experience for both people. Well, let's talk about one of the scariest places where negotiating happens, where it's expected, but most of us don't even do it at all because we're frightened about partaking. And that is negotiating a raise. So how should people approach asking for more money or better benefits at their job? So I love talking about this because I have many, many, many of my readers who have negotiated ten dollars or $20,000 raises. And for everyone listening, it's easy to roll your eyes and say, oh my God, that must be nice. It's impossible. No, it's actually very possible, but you need to do the groundwork. So a couple of principles when it comes to negotiating your salary. The first is that 85% of the work is done before you ever walk in the room. This common caricature we have of negotiating a raise is that we walk up to our boss's office, we kick the door down, we put our hand out and we say, give me some money. That's not the way it works. Okay. If that happens, you're going to be fired. Don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bad tactic guys. So instead, I'm going to give you a series of scripts and techniques that you can use right now to negotiate a raise. The first thing you do is you send an email to your boss and you say to your boss, I would love to sit down with you and spend a half an hour talking about my role here and understanding what it would take to do an amazing job, to be a top performer. Could we talk next Friday? All right. So of course, every boss is going to say yes. So you go into the meeting and you prepare. You say, you know, first of all, thank you for taking the time. I want to make sure that in my role, I'm doing an absolutely amazing job. I'm not here to be mediocre. So I would love to talk to you about what it takes to exceed expectations in my role. Would that be okay? Of course, she says yes. Notice that you're slowly and gradually building up this conversation. So you can then say, okay, I I went back and looked at my job description. These are the three key responsibilities in my job description. Would you agree those are accurate or do you think there's anything that needs to be changed? Okay, again, gradual buy. Then you say, based on the projects and the goals I'm working on, here's what I think it takes to be excellent. And you lay them out. For example, you know, we're working on the website conversion. I think good would be increasing at 2%. I think excellent would be increasing at 4%. And just go through these series of projects. Oh, we're trying to hire 
This person, well, instead of taking 12 weeks, it's, it should take eight weeks. Okay. Oh, am I missing anything? Oh, this one's not really relevant anymore. Great. Okay. So let's correct it. Okay. Well, it seems like we've come to an agreement on these three things that would make me excellent. And again, my goal is to make your life easier. Your boss is smiling. Everybody's happy, right? Flowers are flowering. The music is playing in the back. And you say, <laughs> you know what? I really appreciate the time. I'm going to get to work on these. And if I manage to nail all of these goals, I'd love to discuss a compensation adjustment at that time. But first, let me just get to work and I'll update you every two weeks with a status check. How does that sound? I love that we're calling it a compensation adjustment, by the way. Yeah, versus uh, a raise. <laughs> exactly. Language matters. Language matters a lot. That's why 85% of the work is done before you ever walk in the room. You got to practice this stuff. Okay. So boss says, yes, you walk out. What do you think your boss is feeling as you walk out of that room? Like, man, this guy's a go-getter. This girl is like, she's in it to win it. She wants to help this company succeed. Yes. Yes. And if I were to characterize the word, it would be relief. Wow. I have an employee who actually wants to do an amazing job, who wants to make my life easier. Do you see how we've already completely reframed this discussion from give me money to I'm going to make your life easier? Okay, that's just step one. So you go back to your desk, you write up an email summarizing the conversation, you put the compensation adjustment, but it's towards the bottom. Now is when the hard work starts. You need to actually hit those numbers. People think they should get a raise just because they've been there. No. You don't deserve a raise. You get a raise if you exceed expectations. You've now clarified expectations. Now it's time to exceed them. So you got to do the work. If you need help, get a mentor. Take people out to lunch at work. Ask them, here's something I've been chartered to do. How would you go about it? This is the hardest part. You actually have to be good. Every two weeks, sending an update on Friday. Here's what the goal was. Here's where I am. This one's proving a little tough, but this is what I'm planning to do to get back in course correct. Great. Let's fast forward six months. You send an email. Hey boss, six months ago, we discussed some key goals. As you know, I've been sending you status updates. I'd love to come in and show you the results of that work. Can we set up some time? Of course, you go in. Now, this is where all the magic happens. 85% of the work is done. Now it's time to have some fun. So you go in and you literally make a presentation. You say, six months ago, this is what we discussed. Here are some of the results. My goal was to improve website conversion 4%. I'm really proud to announce that I've improved it 4.5% with the help of this team. My other goal was 12 weeks to eight weeks. I'm so happy to mention that it was actually hired at 6.5 weeks and we have an A plus rating and on and on and on. Boss is smiling. You're smiling. Oh, maybe you can even tie it to profit. This is going to generate XYZ profit. Uh, and by the way, I've saved you three hours a week. Now, and this is where you use something I call the briefcase technique. You can Google the briefcase technique to see this in action. You literally pull out a sheet of paper from a briefcase or a folder. It's almost theatrical. And you're showing the results, but you're also saying, you know what? Based on my research, here's what I have found is typical compensation for my role. And let's say that you are being paid 65K and your role really should be 69 to 72K. You show them the charts. You say, this is what my data shows. We discussed that if I was a top performer, that we could discuss a compensation adjustment. I'd like to have that discussion now. Now, let's just pause right here. What do you think your boss is feeling? I don't think they're feeling put on the spot like they would be if you 
just came out and asked for a raise without doing any work. I think they're proud of your accomplishments. They they want to retain you as an employee because you are a great performer. Yeah, and exactly what you've done that. is you've I mean you've been able to communicate your value to your employer, right? Like any good boss would see that oh, you're actually providing value and and yeah, and any great boss would would be more than happy to uh, to compensate for that value you're bringing to the company. Exactly. Oh, I love it. So you can see that the I will teach you be rich principles apply to a negotiation, which by the way, I show you the exact words to use in chapter nine of my book. They also apply to any other negotiation. When I negotiate with a vendor, for example, I'm not just saying, give me a discount. I'm saying, here's why it makes sense for us to work together. And if you can commit X, then I can commit Y. And it might be a price discount in exchange for me sending a more business, or it might be, I'll pay your full rate, but you need to deliver a status update to me every Thursday. Whatever the case may be, 85% of the work is done before you walk in the room. So for everyone listening, that is how negotiation is done at the pro level. You never walk in and just ask for money. If so, you deserve to be kicked out. But if you want to get the $5,000, $10,000, $25,000 raises, as many of my students have, that is how you begin to do it. So that's a great example. If you find yourself with a current employer and you're looking to to make some moves, for me, if if someone finds uh, themselves you know without room for growth at a current job and they, they decide to look elsewhere, what advice do you have for that person in regarding just landing and making a great impression during uh, an interview with a new potential employer? Okay, so I have an entire course around this, and I want to give you some of the juicy stuff from that course. The course that I have is called find your dream job. And I've got about 20 products on IWillTeachTheBeerich.com slash products. And some of these are finding a dream job, starting a business, mastering your inner psychology, or for the high earners listening, I've got some material on advanced personal finance. When it comes to switching jobs, um, we have these things we call competence triggers. And if you've ever walked in a room and you see someone who just immediately looks competent, there are these competence triggers that you, it's important that you leverage the minute you start looking for a job. For example, a low competence trigger is applying through the front door for a job. You're applying and just competing with everyone else. Now, if you have to do it, you have to do it. But a high competence trigger is having somebody connected to the company, whether it's a current or former employee, sending a personal note and saying, hey, Bob, uh, I know you're hiring for the role of product manager. I have a friend that I'd like to recommend. Or better yet, I just met uh, this person. We went out to coffee and I think they would be amazing for you to interview. That's a high competence trigger. So how do you do that? Well, there's ways to meet this person, take them out to coffee or even a Skype call. Not only are you getting to know them, and I have a series of questions you can ask them, but you're also learning what the company hires for, what they care about. So by the time you walk into that interview, not only have you been blessed by a former or current employee, you know the core goals so you can actually present your briefcase technique in the interview. That's one. Another thing is that people think that in an interview, your job is to answer questions. That's incorrect. Your job, yes, you need to answer questions, but your job is to show your story and hit your key points. So for example, a junior interviewee, if I'm the boss and I say, uh, tell me about yourself, a junior interviewee would say something like, well, I was born here and I went to college. Like, who cares? A more senior experienced person with high competence triggers would say, well, there are three things that I think are important for this role that I'm going to tell you about me. First of all, here's what I studied. 
And here's why it matters. The second thing is in my last role, I was a junior product manager and I was responsible for bringing this conversion technique to market. I did it in two weeks faster than deadline and we exceeded our goals by 13%. And the third thing is communication skills, which I think are critical for this role. Here's how I've improved and worked on mine. See, you answered the question, but you also told your key points. So there are all kinds of ways when it comes to interviewing, negotiating, where all the work is done before you walk in the room. And then by the time you get there, you're both on equal footing. You're deciding if you want the job as much as they're deciding if they want you. I agree. I think most people, they're not in that frame of mind when they're going into an interview for a job. They're not thinking about whether they want the job. They're just trying to impress the person in front of them. And and maybe they're not doing it at the highest level that they could, right? Yeah. Most people are playing from a position of weakness. So they go just, just like everyone else, they go in, they apply through the front door, they put their hands together and pray that they get a callback. And when they do, they go into the interview and they just answer questions. They're basically just being carried along on the raft of life. They sat on a raft and the river is carrying them. They don't choose anything. The river carries them left, they go left. And what I urge people for a rich life, whether it is what you spend your money on, what you save your money on, or how you negotiate, is I have found it's a lot more fun to be a driver rather than a passenger in my own life. And if that means I need to do a little extra work, I need to prep, I need to practice my negotiation, or invest in a course to learn how to write a better resume, then I will. Because I get to choose then and I play from a position of strength. That's what I will teach you to be rich is about. Nice. All right, Ramit. Well, speaking of driving, we're going to talk about putting yourself in the driver's seat when it comes to automating your finances. And we're going to get to some questions about that right after the break. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000-plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money when it comes to financial advice you got to trust the source that's why you listen to this podcast and if you're looking to upgrade your wallet you need to turn to nerd wallet their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products if you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades what could future you do with more travel rewards a hotel upgrade lounge access Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 
I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. All right, we are back. We're going to spend some time talking about automation. But Remy, real quick, I wanted to ask a question regarding what should folks consider when they're making big money decisions? Specifically, I'm thinking of uh, you're featured in a recent CNBC article about grad school as far as just the things to consider. Uh, And so not just things to consider for grad school, but just lots of large purchases in life. I think we don't spend enough time thinking about them. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how we should approach some of those big purchases. Well, I think uh, for big purchases, those typically are things like um, grad school, getting married, buying a house. These are areas where it actually pays to spend time. And most people are busy asking themselves $3 questions when they really should be asking themselves $30,000 questions. So when it comes to buying a house, you know, we have people just repeating these mindless drone statements like renting is throwing money away. That's not true. They're not building any more land. That doesn't even matter. Uh, And what people should be doing is saying, hey, let me understand the numbers as it relates to these big purchases. Same thing with student loans. These days it's become almost popular to tell people that student loans are evil and that it's the worst investment you could possibly make and you shouldn't even go to college. Now, that might be true for some people, but in reality, college education is one of the best investments you can make. Now, yes, you need to be thoughtful about it, but we know from data that people who have a college degree have lifetime earnings of over a million dollars more than people without a college degree. So I want people to stop with the mindless repeating of these phrases and actually get into the numbers. 
let's look. Okay, how much is this degree going to cost you? And all this data is available. It, does it make sense to purchase an apartment in New York or San Francisco or for that matter, Kansas or Chicago? Well, let's talk about it. Let's run the numbers and let's not repeat these almost religious phrases that America has become consumed with. So when it comes for a big purchase, number one is get honest, find out the truth. And the next thing is save for it. I'll, I'll just give you some examples from my own life. I started saving for my wedding in my 20s before I ever met my wife. And I remember writing about this in the first edition of my book. And a lot of people said I was a weirdo. I'm like, yeah, I am a weirdo. I wrote a book on money. Of course, you're weird too. You're talking to me. We're all weird here. Let's just acknowledge it. But what is even weirder in my opinion is closing your eyes and covering your ears and saying, nah, 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 nah. When in reality, you know, again, most people are mostly the same. You're probably going to get married. You're probably going to buy a house. So instead of denying reality, why don't you actually just start saving for it? And I'm so glad I did that. And I'm so glad my readers look ahead 10 years. In fact, there's this article I wrote called the 10 year saving strategy. They look down the road 10 years. They ask people 10 years older than them, what do you wish you'd save for? And then they create a sub savings account and automate their savings for it. That's the way to get ahead. Yeah, man. I think there are lots of folks who something crazy comes up in their life, whether it's a health issue or an issue with a family member, and they just haven't planned at all. And they have no idea what to do. And they don't have the savings and they don't have the time that they wish they could have in order to tackle this issue well, because they have to work more to make more money to pay for whatever's going on. And, and certainly there are things that we can't predict. But what we can do is we can be at least somewhat prepared and at least thinking about the future now, even though we don't know what the future is going to hold. So I think that's great advice. I want to ask you, with, with so much that we juggle in daily life, can you tell us why automating personal finances is so important to you? It's something you talk about a lot. It's probably the most important thing you can do. Uh, automation will give you better results by a factor of a thousand compared to getting financially literate. And this is almost heresy in the financial literacy world. A lot of people think, oh, I need to learn. I need to understand. Yes, you do. Read my book, learn about asset allocation, etc. But when it comes to actually making your money grow, you need to automate. And I'll tell you why. Because right now you're listening to me. Maybe you like me. Maybe you don't. It's up to you. But you say, I'm pumped. I'm excited. I can invest. I can turn $15,000 into $885,000 by just putting it in a passive target date fund. You're pumped. Two weeks from now, you're not going to care. Two weeks from now, you're going to be eating at Chili's. You're going to be out <laughs> bowling. You're going to be doing whatever you're watching on Netflix. And I don't blame you. Trust me. I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, let me micro-optimize my asset allocation. Nobody wants to do that. What we want to do is live our life. What we need to do is get honest about that, acknowledge that we don't want to be financial experts, and put systems in place so that even as we are living our lives, our money is growing for us. You should be spending less than 90 minutes a month on your money. I spend less than 60. And with that, my money goes into a checking account. It's automatically dispersed, almost like an email inbox filter. It's filtered to multiple sub-savings accounts. Those sub-savings accounts include down payment for a house, vacations for the year, gifts, a stupid mistakes account that I have for stupid mistakes that I make. And they're also, I have money sent over to an investment account where that money is automatically invested and allocated properly. This doesn't take me any time. Once I followed the steps in chapter five of the book, the money just goes where it needs to go. And I get to live my life. And I think the best part of this is it's actually very empowering. 
because I get to take the money that I have and spend it guilt-free on the things I love. So for everybody listening, what is your guilt-free spending? What's that money dial, that thing that you love spending on? Is it clothes? Is it eating out? Is it travel? If you spend just a weekend using the I Will Teach You Be Rich book, you can actually afford to spend a lot more on that area of life that you love. That's why automation is important. It doesn't sound like this is that powerful. Oh, okay, automate, I get it. I should set up some automation. I want to tell you why this is so powerful. I got a friend of mine who used the first edition of the book, March 09, and she created some automation stuff. And then she forgot about one of her savings accounts. Okay, she forgot about it for about six years. And she finally was doing a sweep, kind of cleaning up her accounts. This happens to a lot of us, right? We got some old 401k at some old job. We forget. And she was finally organizing it all. She logs into that account. Guess how much money is sitting in that account now? No idea. Tell me. (laughs) $12,000. Oh, nice. $12,000 just passively. And it was just a savings account. It wasn't even being invested. So when you guys look at the numbers of what can be accomplished, even saving $100 or even more as your salary increases, as your sophistication increases, these numbers can become truly staggering. And at that point, it's not magic. It's just math. Yeah, the stats actually show that the best investors are the ones that have completely forgotten about their investment accounts <laughs> when they're automated, right? Because it, they're continuing to put money in, it's continuing to grow for them in the market. And most of us who are realize that we have accounts <laughs> that we're investing money in, we're looking at it, we're making changes. And that's when we're susceptible to making bad decisions. So I, I've always yeah. found that to be fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you that there's a lot of crummy financial advice out there. And there's also just a lot of boring and unhelpful advice that just doesn't motivate people to actually make changes. And so I think what I love about what you're doing, Ramit, is is it's the goal is to help people actually make changes. And you really set your trajectory towards living your own definition of a rich life. So we totally agree with that advice. How do you encourage others to find their idea of a rich life and then start to implement that? Well, I think the simplest thing is to actually spend a weekend reading a good book. And not to plug my own. Well, actually, I I definitely want to plug my own book. I will teach you to be rich. But I think that if you truly expect to live a rich life, then you need to get honest. And you need, I always say, give me 10 minutes with your calendar and your spending, and I will show you your true priorities. If you haven't read a single good book on personal finance, maybe you're not really serious about your money. And if you don't spend any time learning it or any money, Maybe you're not actually serious about it. And you know what? Better to be honest about it than to constantly feel guilty. I think the benefit of learning about money and actually changing your behavior is that it pays off disproportionately. So we have these great examples of people who start investing in their 20s and 30s and the amount of leverage that they can get from time through compound interest. What that means is you can start early and have time almost like a tailwind. It's helping you go faster. Now, the later you get, yes, you can still save and you can still invest, but it becomes a little harder. So I think that I would encourage everyone, there's no better time than today to start. And also, a lot of people have kind of been disenchanted with money. They've been told all the things that money's bad for. Money makes you evil. Money's the root of all evil, which isn't even the right quote anyway. Um, (laughs) You know, you, you can't spend money on lattes. All these things you can't do. And what I'm trying to do with I Will Teach You Be Rich is show you, you can actually live a life of yes. You can live a life of your rich life. And I'll give you one final example here. Um, I always ask people, just like you guys did here, I loved it. 
what do you love spending on? So let me ask both of you guys if you would be willing to do a quick exercise with me. Maybe our listeners can can listen along. What is the thing that you just love spending money on? For me or me, that would be spending money on bikes. I'm actually saving up for another bike right now. I have a, a really nice cargo bike and it's more expensive than some of the beaters that people are driving around, some of their actual cars. So uh, wow, yeah, I love bikes. What, what does a bike like that cost? Like ballpark? The one I have, it's a little over two grand, but they can be upwards of, I mean, like four to $6,000 if you get the, uh, the electronic versions. But yeah, big fans of bikes. Okay, amazing. And, and yeah, for me, craft beer, we drink one on the show. It's, it's very important to us. And then on top of that, traveling once a year, somewhere awesome. And my odd thing is folk art. I love art <laughs> and I love just kind of outsider art. So yeah, buying a nice piece of art every, every year is really important for my wife and I. Wow. I love these answers. They're very unconventional. Okay. So now let me ask you guys this. What if you quadrupled the amount that you spent on art and bikes? What would that look like? What would that feel like? What would that be to you? Man, I feel like for me, if I spent more money on those couple, two or three things I've identified as being a huge priority to me, it would feel like living the rich life, right? That I want to live. And if I deprive myself of those few things that I've prioritized, it, it bums me out. So I think any way that I can allocate more money towards those couple of things that I say are important to me, it just it makes it feel like my priorities, my goals, and the things that I've said I value, I'm actually yeah. putting my money where my mouth is. Well, let's get into specifics. So a rich life is lived in the specifics. And you're going to see me push for this right now. So Right now, if you were to quadruple your spending on craft beer, that's a lot of money. What would that look like? Well, in that case, it might mean <laughs> drinking too much. So, <laughs> okay, maybe. So, that's so interesting. You just went immediately to quantity. That's one way to look at it. Is there another way to look at it? Yeah, I guess I could buy even more expensive versions of certain beers like and, and just enjoy higher quality beers. I've already kind yeah. of made that change in my life. So I feel like actually my spending there, it, it wouldn't necessarily move the needle much. But if I were to spend more money on art, it would move the needle for me. It would, it would be really enjoyable to have more awesome pieces in my house. That would actually move the needle and I feel like bring a lot of joy. Can I ask a question about your craft beer love? Yeah. Where do you drink this craft beer? Typically at home in the evening. Okay. And who do you drink it with? Uh, usually a friend, but typically my wife. Okay. Love it. Allow me to paint a picture for just a second. What if you invited five of your friends, maybe a couple of friends from your, your town and a couple of friends from your old college days, and you said, guys, I'm taking everybody on a trip. We're going to a behind-the-scenes tour of this craft beer that's opening up its craft beer cave for the first time in 20 years and everything's on me. How would that feel to you? Do that feel awesome? I love taking care of my friends. And yeah, so incorporating that with something that I care about like craft beer would be great. Yeah, but I, I would okay. also appreciate if you invited me along that trip. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. So one ticket has already gone. Fine. What, and you're what invited I'm to Ramit, so that's two. <laughs> I'm in. Hey, listen, I'm in. I've never been to one of these things. Okay. The reason that I use that example is that when you ask people, what do you love spending on? Just like you guys, everybody intuitively knows. We all have an answer. It lights our eyes up. Okay. The most common answers I get, food and travel. Mine is convenience. Okay. I wake up in the morning. My calendar's perfect. 
when I leave, when I travel, I have this thing called a travel protocol that gets activated. My assistant has someone somehow come in and water my plants. I mean, I know I sound like a psycho, but this is what I love. Okay. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is when I ask people, what if you quadrupled your spending? They get totally stuck because most of us have never thought about what it would be like to spend extravagantly on the things we love. We're stuck in a mentality of cutting back and we've created an artificial plateau for ourselves. I like craft beer. I already buy nice beer. If I spent more, I'd just drink too much. Maybe because you limited yourself by only thinking about quantity. But what if you completely changed that and you changed the experience? What if you brought your friends and family along? What if you went to a private tour? What if you had your own custom craft beer created? I'm thinking crazy now. And this is what I want people to do. I call this concept money dials. We've all got a money dial. A money dial is something we love spending on. And you can turn that dial way up. You can turn it 2x, 3x, 4x, 10x. And it's not just about quantity. You can actually change the experience. You can have custom classes. You can bring people along. You can do all kinds of stuff. And so when people, for example, say, I love to eat out, that's an awesome one. I like to encourage them. They think I'm going to judge them. I say, tell me more. What if you could quadruple your spending? So they say, I'd eat out every day. I say, great. What kind of places? And they've never thought about this. Oh my God, I'd go to every Michelin-starred restaurant in the city. Oh my God, who would you bring? And now their eyes start to light up. They realize that by turning their money dial up, they can actually create a vision of a rich life. This is why if you sit down and decide what your rich life is and you really push yourself, you can actually spend extravagantly on the things you love, but you got to cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. Yeah, you know, and Ramit, so much of that too, you know, my knee jerk reaction, I mentioned bikes, but the more I'm sitting here hearing you talk about this, it makes me think of maybe the obvious thing that I skipped over, which was my family, like my kids. And for me, I could 100% see myself finding ways to continue to to kind of crank that dial up and easily find ways to to spend more money on my family with the different experiences that we could kind of go on together, the different trips, because I'm kind of a cheap guy (laughs) when it comes to you know, like my own possessions and maybe our own experiences. But, but like mm-hmm. you said, when you start looking to others, you start looking to either your community, your friends, and to your family. Why, like, it's almost limitless as far as the, the amount of joy that those different relationships can bring you. That's exactly it. That's what I want to show people. And in order to do that, you need to implement the lessons of I will teach you be rich. But you can see that it becomes less about money at a certain point. Once you have your investments automated and your savings accounts set up, and it actually becomes your rich life limited only by your imagination. That's why the stories in this book are so important because you can see how other smart people decided to create their rich lives and they can inspire you. That's awesome. And Ramit, folks can find you there at your site at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. Man, this has been such a fun conversation. We are we're really stoked to have had you join us. Thanks so much for, for sharing some stories with us and, uh, and talking to us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you guys both for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ramit. All right, Matt, that was such a great conversation with Ramit. I feel like we covered a lot of ground and I hope our listeners were able to take away a lot from this. I know I learned some stuff in this conversation. Yeah, it was just fun to talk to a veteran basically in the personal finance space, right? He's been doing this for for well over 10 years. I mean, I think closer to 20 now. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So let's share our big takeaways. Like, What's the biggest thing you took away from this conversation? Yeah, Joel, for me, I think it had to do with negotiating. Uh, he mentioned how I think it was his mom that said, well, it, you can always ask. Like, It doesn't hurt to ask. All they can say is no. And to be polite 
in that it's not necessarily this sort of adversarial situation where one person loses and the other person wins. It can be this dance where both parties win. Everybody comes out ahead. Everybody's happy. It's like a tango. Yeah, that fancy dance that you love to do, the tango. (laughs) (laughs) But I just think that it's something that we don't do enough is whether it be asking for a discount or or finding ways to see if we can pay less. We don't advocate for ourselves enough. Um, and, And it's because oftentimes we feel like that we're putting somebody else at a disadvantage when a lot of times that's just not the case. So hearing him talk about negotiating, that it's this this dance, this tango, where both parties win, that really stuck with me. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. So for you, Joel, uh, what stood out? Yeah, for me, my big takeaway was to combat the money scripts that you've been fed for your entire life. I think there are things that we believe about money. I know there are things that I believed about money based on the way I was raised for a lot of years. And it was kind of underneath the surface. I couldn't even identify it. And so I think when I began to kind of unearth my feelings about money in my life and and kind of combat what's true and what's not true, it's been really helpful towards having a, a healthier relationship with money. And so I think there are a lot of things that we might not even be aware of in our minds. And it takes kind of looking beneath the surface to see what money scripts have we been fed during our childhood or from friends or from a spouse. And they lead to a lot of money struggles that we have in our lives. And so identifying, being aware of, and then starting to wrestle with some of those money scripts that we've been fed can make a big impact on how you relate to money from here on out. Nice. Yeah, that's so true, right? Like a lot of times we're not even aware that those scripts are kind of running in the background. They're they're sort of like the default operating system that our our brains are sort of working on when it comes to how we think about money. Yeah. And by the way, we don't have a beer <laughs> to review on the show today. <laughs> we had cold brew because we had a morning conversation with Ramit. Matt, how was your coffee? Oh, it was it was very delicious. You know, we've talked about coffee before, and I think a lot of times folks hear cold brew and they're not totally sure what that means. But for us, you and me, we both make our cold brew this way. But all you have to do is just grind up some beans dump it in a mason jar and fill it up with water. <laughs> Let it sit overnight, preferably like 24 hours to where it really steeps and all that coffee delicious flavor kind of infuses into the water. And boom, that's cold brew. You can either then filter it with a French press or in our case, we always use our Chemex. So it actually filters through the paper. And because of that, we have zero sediment in the actual coffee. Sometimes uh, folks get turned off by cold brew at home because sometimes it can lead to sediment in your coffee. But that's one way around it is to actually filter it like you would a uh, regular drip. Yeah. And I love cold brew, especially in the warmer summer months. And by the way, don't fret. We're going back to craft beer next episode, we promise. (laughs) And also, we need to mention, Matt, that we are giving away copies of Ramit's book. This giveaway is open to folks that have already left a review on Apple Podcasts for us or are willing to leave a review this week. Once you leave a review, all you got to do is shoot us an email at howtomoneypod at gmail.com with the username you left your review under, and you're automatically entered to win. And if you don't have an iPhone, you can leave a review on Stitcher via your web browser or your phone. And you have till Friday at noon to leave this review and then let us know in order to be entered into this giveaway. Yeah. High noon Friday. <laughs> be there. <laughs> High noon. That's where you have the gun duels, right? Exactly. In, the, in, the, in the Wild West. Yeah. So again, we were excited to have Remit on. If you want to learn more about him, you can go to his website at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. And we'll also have all those links listed out in our show notes, which you can find on our website at HowToMoney.com. All right, buddy. This was a fun one. Until next time, best friends out. Best friends out. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 